You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. All right, so we have Julie Yu on the podcast today from... Kairos, which is based out of Boston. Julie, welcome uh, to the podcast. How's it going? Good, thanks, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm excited for you to share some of your uh, background with our listeners. So you're currently Chief Product Officer at Kairos, and we did some work together several years back. And uh, as I recall, the, the main... This is actually news to me. I didn't know this, but hospitals, you're in the healthcare space and you oversee product and strategy for the company. And hospitals, when we all call and we want to schedule an appointment with a doctor, a lot of us get a referral from a friend or whatever, and we call them and it's difficult to get an appointment. In reality, the hospitals often have tons of supply on their end that's not getting used. And, and those doctors or service providers may be fully qualified to help out those patients if only the people on the, other, on the scheduling side could help match the patients up with the service provider. Is that basically what, what your uh, main software, the provider match software does? Yeah, absolutely. We're, yeah, we're, we're solving what we've coined as the patient access paradox, which is that fundamental mismatch between patient demand being told to wait multiple weeks or even months to get an appointment. And we all assume that that's because every slot is booked out solid in whatever market we're in. But it turns out that on the hospital side of things or in the health system side of things that Typically, our customers are operating at anywhere as low as 70 to 80% capacity utilization. Uh, one thing I'll qualify there, it's not necessarily just empty slots that are going up completely unused, which is certainly an issue. But what we also focus on is best utilizing your resources for the unique expertise and skills that they bring to the table. And what we also focus on is, are you getting to the right doctor the first time? And that's from a clinical lens. You know, there's tons of subspecialties in medicine, and we want to make sure you're getting to the right specialist or subspecialist, or even within primary care, there can be variance in terms of what people focus on. And then also level of care, which is if you have certain types of conditions, oftentimes part of the reason why you have to wait so long is that you're sent immediately to a very scarce specialist resource who tends to be harder to book with, just have, has more limited time. Whereas that condition may actually be treatable by a lower acuity provider, anything from a generalist to a primary care provider, maybe even a nurse practitioner, or even a walk-in clinic. This day and age that we see a lot of activity in terms of retail clinics and walk-in care. So we look across that entire spectrum of possible options to serve the patient and ensure that the patient is getting routed to the most effective place in the most efficient possible way. That's pretty cool. I, I didn't realize there was so much like miss. I mean, obviously, you know, the specialists, everyone wants to see them for, you know, it's like, I have any arm problem. I need to go to the best arm doctor in the world kind of thing. You didn't know that that was so taxed, like, you know, 80, 70 to 80%, mm-hmm. uh, you know, under, under, under utilization rate is pretty interesting. Why don't you tell people about your background? I, I know you, you studied pre-medicine at MIT and you, you have an MBA from Harvard. Is that correct? And you went to MIT Sloan. So you have quite a background. What, what do you do at, at Kairos yourself? And, and can you tell us about your background a little bit? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's blasphemy that you just said I went to Harvard MBA. I actually went to MIT for my MBA. So oh, it's funny to qualify that. But no, well, um, no, no but I, um, no I was originally... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was actually, yeah, I came to um, MIT as an undergrad thinking that I wanted to be a doctor when I grew up. So I started out as a biology major doing pre-med. Happened to be in school during the, the initial original dot-com boom back in the late 90s. And actually got sort of influenced to look at computer science and fell in love with it, uh, just the problem solving aspects of it. And I love coding and building things from nothing. So ended up actually majoring in computer science while also finishing up my pre-med requirements. But my first job out of college was actually as a software engineer. So I totally focused on kind of the technical side of that track. Always, however, maintaining my personal interest in the intersection of healthcare and technology. First several years of my career was software engineering. I worked at a company called Indeca Technologies here in Boston, which I think mm-hmm. is pretty well known locally. They were an enterprise search technology, initially focused, and I think probably best known for their work in the e-commerce space. So we powered the online search catalogs for the major e-commerce companies across the country and even the world. So cut my teeth there. And then ultimately figured out that I love being customer facing. I, you know, kind of was intrigued by the business side of things. So migrated more into product and eventually, you know, now today I'm, I'm more of a product manager is, is kind of where I would identify myself. And also at the same time, about six years into my career at Indeca, that was really when the federal government started pouring resource into the digitization of healthcare. And that was really when kind of I had a light bulb moment myself around the opportunity within healthcare to uh, apply software and technology and data to improve efficiencies, as we were talking about earlier, but also improve clinical outcomes, of course. And so I actually made a career change by way of grad school, which is how I ended up at MIT Sloan. The Harvard component is that I did a dual degree program that was a collaboration between Harvard and MIT by way of, of that got exposure to both the business side as well as the clinical side. So the Harvard-MIT HST program is a collaboration between Harvard Medical School and MIT proper. So I did my master's through that program. And initially actually focused on personalized medicine, something that's completely unrelated to what we do here at Tyrus, but it was sort of intuitively an area where I could apply my sort of data analytics and software expertise, given that genomics was one of the first areas where software was being applied at scale in the healthcare and life sciences area. And so the first couple of companies that I did were in that, that area, genomics and uh, genetic sequencing and personalized medicine. So I had a couple of companies that I worked with there as uh, essentially the first employee of those companies on the product side. Both of those companies eventually got acquired but when I, gosh, after the, the second company was acquired in 2010, that was when myself and my current co-founder, Graham Gardner, decided to get together and go after the opportunity that Kairos is focused on around patient access. And so I was the founding chief product officer at Kairos. I wrote the first version of the product with my own two hands and have shaped the roadmap, user engagement, definitely own design as part of the product management function have now, as the company has scaled, moved into more of a strategy role. So really focused on, you know, three to five year direction of the business, new market segments, how do we fit into the broader technology ecosystem within the digital health space, but really have my anchoring and foundation in product. Got it. Cool. That's thanks for sharing that background. So you, you mentioned in there that you own the design as part of the, your, your role in product at Kairos. So as I, if I recall correctly with Provider Match, and correct me, whenever you want to jump in, that the 
the primary end users tend to be people that are scheduling appointments, which may include some people with medical background, like a, the nurse, uh, nurse managers, I believe. And you're trying to provide them with a tool that lets them take in patient requests for things like language of the provider, gender of the provider, location of the provider, and obviously dates of availability. And then they, they're able to type in like a condition like skin rash or something. And then you can provide, uh, or the uh, scheduler is able to provide them with a response like, oh, we have these four people available on Tuesday from 11 to 3. They're all great. Here's where they went to school, da 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 is that still what it is? And can you tell me about how do you, how do you go about designing that experience? And, and how do you guys know if you're, you're doing a good job? Like besides the fact that the check's clear and they keep renewing, how do you guys mm-hmm. evaluate and, and design for that? You do remember correctly that one of our major user bases is the patient access call center agent who is a frontline staff member whose sole job it is to answer the phone all day, every day and help patients get matched to the right doctor and then book with appointments. That was our flagship product, what's called Provider Match for Access Centers, that we launched over five years ago at this point. And so that remains a major user constituent that we serve. Since then, we've expanded our product portfolio just to make it a little bit more complicated. So we actually now, I would say, have three major users that we serve. Uh, In addition to that, the one being the call center agent that you described, Another actually being the patient or the consumer, him or herself. So we actually have launched a patient-facing product called Provider Match for Consumers. And this was you know, several years ago at this point. But the idea there is to enable us as consumers to self-serve. We have a white label product that our customers will embed in their websites or their mobile apps or any of their kind of public-facing digital storefronts, so to speak. And that allows for us to do our own research on who might be the best provider for me based on my preferences, my criteria, and then also facilitate online scheduling. So being able to actually book an appointment digitally online. So that's the second user base that we serve. And then a third major user base is actually the physicians and the providers themselves. And this has become a very powerful leverage point for us to be able to engage these organizations at scale and really provide a strong value proposition back to the physicians who I would say traditionally in the digital health world are sometimes viewed as obstacles. A lot of companies struggle to really engage with those providers and you know, express the value proposition that's, that, that's big enough to get those, those individuals to buy in, let alone to actually use products. And you may recall, originally my philosophy around Provider Match was we need to design a product that can be deployed and go live and drive value without any reliance on physicians doing anything in our product. And the primary reason for that is that physicians are extremely busy. And it's, I think, a fraught strategy to depend on a physician to come out of whatever their core workflow is, take away from the time that they're spending with a patient to learn a new thing and and or using a, a different app than what is core to their clinical mission for, for serving the patient. So we actually started with that philosophy, but as we matured and as we were demonstrating great outcomes, we were able to kind of pivot that into a much more explicit physician engagement approach. And so today they are actually the majority of our users, technically speaking, in terms of the number of, of users who are accessing our products. And so that's been another another dimension to it. As you can imagine, each of those user bases is extremely different. And there, I mean, we can go on and on, and I'm happy to go in whatever direction would make sense, but we have a pretty distinct framework that we use for each one of those user bases. And yes, we serve them all through the same uniform platform. 
And there are certain elements of consistency that we want to drive across the user experience across those three user bases. But as you can imagine, the use cases, the user stories, the scenarios that we're addressing within each of those buckets can be quite distinct. So can you tell us a little bit about how you design for these different constituencies? And if, if you have like a, a recent anecdote about maybe a, a project you guys did and, and how, do you, how do you keep mm-hmm. all this simple and keep the scheduling time as minimal as possible, which I assume would be the, the goal here so that the maximum time is spent on patient care? How do you design for those experiences? Like, how do you move through that? Yeah, I think just the basic thing we start with is just a crisp definition of the actual user personas. And, you know, certainly each of those user sets is using our product for a very different purpose. So take the call center agent, for instance. Any, with, when they answer the phone, the person on the other end of the phone clearly already has some intention of taking some action because they've gone through the work of dialing the number you know, put, uh, waiting for someone to answer um, and clearly are, are looking to get served. And so a, a lot of the, the message around that user base is efficiency. You've got, you know, only a few seconds to capture the attention of that, of that customer and essentially convert them. And, you know, one of the ways that we define the job of the call center agent that might be distinct from some of the other users is their primary goal is conversion. They need to drive yields from, you know, every 10 calls that come in with a patient looking to get an appointment, we want the number of booked appointments that come out of that to actually be 10. Some of the, the sort of sad state of affairs in, in the healthcare industry is that many of the organizations that we engage with are starting at conversion rates of as low as 20%, meaning of every 10 patients that call in trying to get an appointment, maybe only two of them will leave that call with an actual booked appointment in hand. And so there's a ton of, you know, sort of depth around, you know, how do we drive that use case for that user base, which is distinct from, let's say, the consumer, right? Because the consumer, I may just be doing research and I might be early in my funnel, my my patient journey, and not yet ready to book an appointment when I'm engaging with provider match. Or it might not even be me. I might be, you know, sort of doing research on, on behalf of someone else, or certainly I might be coming with an intention to book. And so I would say a big challenge that we're still chipping away at and have tons to learn is, you know, how do you effectively segment those user stories and scenarios and serve, you know, all those user sets and, and uh, narratives through a single product? So that, you know, is a, is a different sort of problem. Whereas physicians, on the other hand, are the primary goal for them to come into our solution is to optimize the configuration and the rules engine that determines which patients get referred or scheduled with them. And so that's much more of a personal experience in a lot of ways because the physician is looking to us, our product, to help describe to the world, you know, what it is that they do and under what circumstances should a patient be sent to me. And so that, you know, sort of elicits a whole different emotional experience in some ways that relies heavily on, you know, an empathy for the perspective of that physician and really a kind of, I would say, a caution around making too many assumptions about, you know, what that individual is looking to accomplish or how they want to express their, you know, sort of clinical expertise through our product. And so there's a whole, again, another set of narratives around that piece. And so just that that mere definition hopefully, you know, paints the picture of just the complexity that results from having to serve such distinct user sets. We do have different teams that focus on those different user experiences as well. And that ability to have individuals specialize in, you know, certain use cases in certain areas gives us, 
uh, a lot of depth around how we're able to focus and and just drive a lot of insight into those various populations versus kind of diluting it by having teams sort of spread, you know, across those those areas. So those are just some of the types of frameworks that we use to be able to effectively address those different user populations. Do you have either your designers and or like the product managers? I'm, I'm, it sounds like you have them like assigned to each of the different products that focus on the different personas. Do they do any type of interviews or any type of research activities with these? Like, I'm curious if you like learned anything, mm-hmm. like have any cool nuggets of stuff that you, you know, maybe you would have found out through the, the design process about talking to a, a doctor like, man, I would never type in that I'm an expert at this, even though I totally am because X or did you learn any, find any particular nuggets that are kind of interesting? Yeah, absolutely. We do, I would say three major types of testing. One is we actually are privileged to have Lots of folks who are either clinicians or ex-hospital administrators at our company. So we have an in-house team that can serve as sort of test users for a lot of our new concepts. So we do a kind of internal testing when we're developing new ideas or new designs. So that's one way we do it. We also obviously use external user testers as well. So whether it be, you know, sites like usertesting.com or other services that allow you to sort of recruit ad hoc users and test various concepts. We've done a lot of that kind of work as well. And then we also go observe our users at our customer sites. And we've, we've done a, a combination of both observation of actual, you know, call center agent type users within their dedicated setting, but also direct consumer research as well. So we'll, you know, give away Starbucks cards to just regular people off the street who are willing to, you know, kind of sit down and give us feedback. So all of that is, is um, a source of data into our process. But so many stories of things that are, were just completely eye-opening. Everything from, you know, I mentioned earlier, the emotion that gets elicited when you are working with a physician to try to define what their referral protocols are. You know, this is, imagine sitting down with an engineer and designing a routing protocol for determining what projects they get assigned to and just how personal of an experience that would be. You know, that's kind of the same lens that, that we, we observe and experience with physicians. In a period of time where, you know, you may have read this or heard this, but certainly in healthcare, one of the major topics and stories that has a lot of buzz right now is physician burnout. We live in and breathe it every single day with our users where physicians are really burned out and they are, uh, their jobs have become, you know, less about direct patient care and much more about administrative tasks and tracking of data and submission of billing information things of that sort. And so, you know, part of the sort of the, the, the line that we have to navigate is how do we introduce our solution, which we believe has a such a strong correlation with less burnout sensation and, you know, the ability to actually focus on the types of cases that you want to, to focus on and, you know, leverage your many, many years of training for the things that you're uniquely qualified to do. How do we do that, you know, in this context where people are, they just have no mental space and energy left to take on new products and, and new applications and new workflows and new tasks. You know, I think the emotional aspect of, of the physician engagement piece is, is definitely something that, you know, I, I distinctly remember from, from so many of those conversations. And then I think it's also, you know, from a consumer lens, when I, when I think about the patient, I think we're, we're doing a big role. We're, we're, part of our role as Kairos, I believe, is to really educate the market about how to think about doctor, doctor appointment booking. I think too often consumers think that whatever appointment they can get soonest is the best option for them. 
And obviously, you know, they don't necessarily realize the downstream negative impact of making a choice to go see one kind of doctor who's available tomorrow versus waiting maybe a few days or maybe even a couple of weeks to see the doctor who might be better qualified to see you from a clinical lens. That's part of what our product is is about. The core philosophy of our solution is, yes, get the patient in efficiently and as quickly as possible, but never at the expense of getting them to the right clinical provider. And so that's another piece that I see come out in droves when we're doing user testing is why can't I just book this one at the soonest? Because I saw it before in the, in the workflow two steps ago and, you know, just kind of explaining how do we present that, you know, kind of in, in the user experience that's been a big challenge for us, but certainly something that is a primary goal for, for our products. Do you find with the, the service that you provide that's more doctor-facing, especially one where they, it sounds like they have to input a bunch of preferences, which then enables them to receive more qualified bookings into their calendar, so to speak. Is it hard? I, I, in some, you know, one of the things I talk about on my list a lot is, is the need to go out and have direct one-on-one conversations you know, with the people that are going to use your solutions, especially with analytics products where, you know, lots of data, you know, as, as the data grows, the, the complexity tends to go up. And so what, one of the problems some enterprise uh, companies have is access to the actual, not the buyers of these platforms, which may be entire, like maybe you're selling into a CTO or something like that at a, you know, in a hospital network, but they're probably not the ones that are going to be using the interfaces and it's hard to get mm-hmm. access. Do, do you have that problem? And do you have any Mm-hmm. ways that you've worked around to, to entice them to participate in, in research. Yeah. And, and Absolutely. That is definitely a challenge for any company in our space with physicians in particular as the audience. And, and even frankly with call center agents, right? Because they have such a real-time job that any interruption during the day while they're on call to answer the phone can be viewed as, you know, as a deleterious engagement. Yes, we absolutely deal with that. We have the benefit of a, you know, because we are, my co-founder is a physician, our CEO, we happen to have a very rich network of physicians who are friendly to Kairos and are certainly willing to take time out of their day to come, you know, tell us what it's like on the other side and, and obviously their feedback on our product. And we are very careful always to balance physicians, the types of physicians. So there are physicians who work in organizations like Mass General here in Boston that are highly specialized, highly academic focused, probably have a big focus on research and are really on the leading edge of novel, innovative medical treatment paradigms versus many of our clients who are not that and who are just, you know, regular old community-based hospitals that you know, kind of deal with the general population and are not necessarily seeing the most unique cases, but have to serve, you know, millions of of consumers and patients who have very basic needs. And so we're always careful to kind of balance the types of physicians that we, we talk to and get feedback from across those various settings. We also, over time, I would say, have taken a much more prescriptive approach with our customers around physician engagement. Certainly used to be the case when we first launched that we were tiptoeing around the clinical leadership and didn't want to bother the folks who uh, were kind of on the, the clinical front line, you know, that became a challenge for us to really configure and validate the data within our platform to, to make sure that we're driving the right outcomes. Now, fast forward, you know, many years later, we actually have as part of our implementation playbook, a requirement to engage with the clinical side of the business. That was a hard cultural transition to make both internally and with our customers. 
But now that we have so much data, which we can certainly talk about, but we have data that shows the benefit of doing that, not only just data, but oftentimes, you know, qualitative narrative plays a big role in just getting people to buy into that paradigm. We pretty explicitly and, you know, sort of, I wouldn't say forcefully, but certainly, you know, it's, it's highly recommended to our customers that we directly, that Kairos, you know, Kairos' employees as part of the implementation process directly talks to physicians. So we've taken a pretty hard line on that and it's, it's certainly benefited us. Oh, so, so like when, when they sign a deal, there's actually something in the agreement about your, your right to access their providers to make the service work and that type of thing? Not contractual at all. It's part of our, our implementation playbook is what I'll call it where we lay out, you know, here are the four tracks of implementation that we need to accomplish in X number of months. One of them, one of them is just purely, you know, technical data integration, things of that sort. One might be, how do we design your workflows? One might be around analytics. And then one is actually position engagement. So it's, it's really just part of our implementation methodology. And, you know, just like almost kind of a consulting mindset, you know, when you hire a consulting firm, they've got their recommended way of doing things. And you sort of assume that, in order to get the best outcomes, you want to follow their playbook. So that's kind of the approach that we've used with our implementation process. I see. That's a really interesting. I, I like that idea of, you know, encouraging it from from the outset as part of a product company. I think that's really that's a mm-hmm. really great idea to to bake into your product if, if you're in a uh, on premise deployment type situation where there's you know some kind of setup process and it's not, you guys obviously have to go through some level of customization probably with every new, you know, hospital network that you guys bring on board. So you mentioned... Analytics. We like to say configuration, not customization, but yes, absolutely. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned analytics at the end. So I actually did want to jump into that. So obviously, if you guys are selling this product on... on you're, you're almost like a market maker, right? You're bringing supply and demand. You're optimizing mm-hmm. supply and demand. What type of data or, or interfaces or it maybe it's uh, APIs to the hospital, but I imagine they want to know what their ROI is for purchasing these systems. So do you have some yeah. type of reporting or analytics dashboard that helps the administrator and who would be those users and tell me what some of their use cases might be if you would indeed have something like that? Absolutely. A- analytics is critical to the value narrative and the ROI of our products. So we actually do have a web-based in-app analytics product, Provider Match Analytics, that comes with our platform. There's a number of ways by which we deploy it. So first of all, a user, an end user who has the appropriate level of, of authorization can just log into their browser window and see the analytics dashboards at any point of any day. And we've obviously optimized it. We have a set of CAN reports that we offer out of the box that you know sort of represent the KPIs that we've defined as the leading indicators are discussed for the different products that we have. So that's, you know, one major component of it. We have a framework where we think about three levels of analytics. One is what I'll call reflective analytics, which is, uh, you know, kind of the most basic type of reporting where we're sort of almost reading back to the organization what kinds of activity are flowing through our products. To use your parlance, it is literally demand and supply, meaning how many requests for this kind of appointment came in in the last week and then bumping that up against your provider network, the supply side, so to speak, and saying, did you have the sufficient supply to serve that need? What kinds of gaps do you have in that network? So that's kind of the most basic reflective analytics. One level up from that is what we call impact metrics that say, okay, of the 1,000 calls that you got for atrial fibrillation-related services last week, 
what percentage of them converted into an actual booked appointment, what percentage didn't convert, and what was the outcome of those calls, why weren't you able to serve those needs, how many new patients were you able to acquire through your web-based find-a-physician application that's powered by Provider Match, and how many established customers returned to you, were loyal to you by coming back to you you and and booking a follow-up appointment. Those are some of the types of impact metrics that are kind of a level up from that reflective data, demonstrate some kind of business outcome that our product is associated with. And then the third tier is ROI, true ROI, financial ROI that says, okay, so relative to baseline, you know, historically before you deploy provider match, you were able to utilize X percent of your scheduled uh, schedulable resources. You had, you know, X number of, um, you know, patient appointments that were booked in a given period of time of this distribution across primary care and specialty care. There's actually benchmark dollar amounts that are out there that are well accepted that represent the top line value of each of those appointments. So maybe your specialist cases are worth $2,000 and your primary care cases are worth $1,000. Multiply out the volumes that are flowing through provider match relative to baseline and determine what did you get for the money that you invested in our product. So that obviously is, is a bit of a holy grail where you're able to demonstrate you know, what did you get back for how much you spent on, on Kairos and obviously give you reasons to invest. So those are kind of the three levels that we describe. The first two tend to be fairly self-service. You know, you can log into that web-based dashboard, see it, believe it, move on. We have a, a, an account management team that has a more of a high-touch engagement model with that third tier where we go to the C-level executive team, essentially, and present that back in an actual face-to-face meeting on a quarterly basis. Because, you know, there's a tremendous amount of depth, obviously a tremendous amount of assumption and, you know, business context that needs to be wrapped around the presentation of that kind of data. We make sure that we're doing that in a a fairly high-touch way versus some of our more self-service analytics reports. That's really uh, interesting about the how you called it reflective uh, analytics and and kind of moves up the the value chain almost in, in terms of being able to quantify ROI uh, ROI for the investment. So is there a way to tell whether or not in the end that like I, I totally get, you know, hospitals, there there's a there's a financial side to healthcare, obviously is a huge financial part of healthcare, but in terms of improving patient lives and quality of healthcare and all of that, is there is there any way to quantify or measure from your service that that healthcare is improving or is it kind of implied it's implicit mm-hmm. from assuming well more yeah. people booked appointments with more qualified we assume they got better is there any way to that you guys can provide that insight or is it too difficult yeah no we have a couple ways we think about it so first of all certainly clinical quality measurement is something that we as a society have yet to crack fully and you know there is no silver bullet if, if anything there are way too many quality standards and metrics out there and not yet uh, what I would call a systematic standard for you know, measuring the impact of a given intervention from a, from a clinical quality lens. We look at it from one of two ways. One is, is definitely a derivative of, you know, by way of getting you to the right doctor the first time in a timely fashion, we're avoiding, you know, A, just making sure that you're getting the care that you need, first of all. And B, if you were to not get that care in a timely manner, typically you know, there's lots of studies that show that delays in care can have a fairly um, detrimental, you know, downstream impact in terms of, of the overall health of the patient. So that's more kind of, of a derivative lens or a qualitative lens, you know, one kind of way to think about it. The actual thing that we are looking to, to quantify and, and measure, and we actually have a couple of academic studies that we've published on this topic 
that were a proof of concept of sorts of you know what needles we can move. A big part of what we focus on is is focus. If you are an orthopedic surgeon, and yes, you've been trained in you know forty different types of things, and you know see uh, could you know technically see lots of different types of cases, you actually might be you know best suited to see a certain handful of those things, maybe five types of procedures that you're sort of more uniquely qualified to to focus on. And historically, if you're not using a system like Provider Match, the likelihood that you'll get referred something from that bigger bucket is pretty high, right? Because people see you as an orthopedic surgeon, they assume that you can see any of these types of cases, and so you end up getting a pretty varied um, spectrum of of types of referrals. By way of use of a provider match, we're able to deterministically narrow the focus of what gets sent to that physician. And there are many, many studies that show that if a, two things, one is if a physician has more experience around a certain procedure type, then they tend to be better in terms of outcomes, mortality, morbidity, than physicians who have less experience, kind of the Malcolm Gladwell, you know, 10,000 iterations uh, type rule. So lots of studies that show that. The second thing is if you, let's say you and I, Brian, are both orthopedic surgeons and I do 50 hip replacement surgeries a year. And that's, that's kind of my practice. Let's say you do 80 hip replacement surgeries a year, but you also do 30 knee replacements and, you know, 20 of some other type of, of procedure. Even though you do more hip replacements than me, we've shown the data shows that I'm still going to be the higher quality surgeon because I'm focused on just that procedure. And so that to us is our clinical holy grail, let's call it, where, you know, through the use of provider match, can we demonstrate that we're allowing physicians to not only drive volume around certain areas, but also focus more specifically on the areas that they're uniquely qualified to serve and therefore drive better outcomes from a clinical lens. Yeah, I could see how you guys could derive that, you know, someone's spending all of their time doing their kind of specialization area, obviously they're probably building more expertise in that. So do you have any advice for other product managers of data products or analytics practitioners in terms of, you know, leveraging design to bring more value to your, you know, your, your own business, your organization, your customers? Have you seen any mm-hmm. positive change that's come out of a particular design activity that you might've done that you're like, I would fully recommend doing this, or I think that's a really good, you know, good for the, 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 mm-hmm. the product. Any comments on that? Sure. Yeah. No, I think there's obviously tons of tactics like the ones that I described that you could certainly use on a day-to-day to, you know, do design and, and kind of execute the process. But I think the the sort of the more global statement I would make is that your, your kind of focus on design has to be genuine. And you know, I think I certainly, as the founding head of product, have, I've always looked at design as a critical element of why our product is going to be differentiated and more successful in the market. You know, part of how I know that that's worked out and then played out is that our customers, when we, we do a, an NPS survey uh, with our customers um, periodically, and the number of comments that we get back that say, your solution is the easiest to use that we've ever used in this area, or, you know, the, the design is so simple, and that's what, that's what gets us to use the product and, and stay using the product. We see that kind of feedback come in every day. And that, you know, I think oftentimes I, I talk to a bunch of product leaders and just other, you know, sort of technical leaders in, in other companies. And if that's not coming from the top, if that's not a genuine thing and, and a belief that the person at the top of the totem pole, you know, doesn't have, then I think oftentimes design becomes something that's contrived. And, you know, it, it's harder in that scenario to make design not just a 
an element of what's, what's being done, but really a core part of the engineering process. And that's kind of the advice I would give is, you know, design shouldn't be a separate thing. It should be part of the actual engineering process, you know, easier said than done. But, you know, literally, as we think about our teams and how we design our scrum teams, in addition to having obviously your engineers, your POs, your, you know, project managers, your scrum masters, et cetera, a design, you know, lead is a required element of each one of those teams. And, you know, that makes it kind of a sticky and, and fundamental part of the day-to-day process versus someone who's called in as a consultant, oftentimes after the fact, which is kind of the unfortunate story that you oftentimes hear is designed but gets brought in way too late after, you know, a lot of the fundamental thinking has already been done versus having that person be just part of that, that core team that's doing the thinking from day one. So those are, that's kind of how it's played out with us. That said, I would say it's, you know, it's, it's a constant struggle when you're an organization that's growing rapidly, that has limited resources, that, you know, has 100 priorities, you know, making sure that you are always emphasizing the value of design, which is, you know, sometimes very hard to measure in quantitative terms, is always a challenge. But I think if you do have a leader who believes in the power of design and that you have processes that make it a core part of, of how you execute, that you have, you're, you're you know, much better set up to to do that than than otherwise. Yeah, I think there's some good stuff there. I mean, it, it's most the the clients and that I work with, you can usually tell from the, you know, the investment and enthusiasm uh, and importance that's placed on the discipline at the top, how well it's going to impact or how much, if at all, it's going to impact, even if they have a large amount of staff, if, if those staff aren't properly engaged in the process, they're not inserted at the right time. They're not working upstream mm-hmm. with business stakeholders to kind of set. I always kind of see it as helping to visualize and put the right experience in to reflect the intent of the product manager and the business. It's 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 the mm-hmm. execution, even though it's a strategic role, in a way it's executing that vision for engineering so that they build the right stuff. And if they're not deployed right. properly, then at best you you're back to, you know, maybe painting the pig or doing kind of surface level changes. And, and and that can then obviously trickle all the way down to your downstream stakeholder, like the data that comes out the other mm-hmm. end and how useful are those yes. analytics about ROI and stuff at the end. And I think some people mm-hmm. in the analytics space are still kind of learning what to, I kind of get this feeling in, in, in the data and analytics industry that talk about data visualization a lot, but not necessarily about user experience and and what the ROI that good design can bring. And so... You tend to talk about just you know UI level details, but not necessarily the strategic side of of aligning the products from the needs of the users and the business to kind of get both of those positive outcomes. Because obviously, if the business is successful, you can then pump more back, you know, pump more money back into investing in a better product and experience, and everybody. It's kind of a win win for everyone if you have that buy in from the top. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so much of it. I mean, we have the benefit of selling into typically what's labeled as patient experience budget. So more more and more health systems these days are realizing that, you know, historically they've been super optimized for physicians. And, you know, if you look at the example that I always use is if you go to any traditional hospital website that's not using a product like Provider Match, the, the for, first question that it typically asks you as a patient is what department do you need to see? And <laughs> how are you as a consumer supposed to know whether or not you're supposed to go to cardiology versus pulmonology versus neurology? It's kind of ridiculous that we put that burden on the patient. And so now organizations are realizing we can't, we can't do that anymore. We can't get away with that. Consumers expect more because of the bar that has been raised 
through their experiences in other industries and for better or for worse, you know, we always say, um, why is it so easy to book a multi-leg international complex flight using just my thumb in 30 seconds on a mobile app, but it's so hard to get a primary care doctor's appointment in healthcare. And, you know, that's something that, that our customers are, are recognizing and contending with. And so because of that, you know, everyone in our company has had some experience with that, right? We all can have empathy with what difficulty and challenge exists around the historical doctor uh, booking process. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's really where it, it goes. It, it, it's not coming at it from like, what are the pixels and what color are the buttons? And, you know, what does the UI look like? But what is that end-to-end experience that can be emotional, right? And you might have just gotten diagnosed with some, some crazy disease and be fearful and anxious while you're going through this experience. And we always try to, you know, coach our team to remember what it's like to be on that side of the table when you're, when you're designing your workflows and whatnot. But yeah, we have, we again have the benefit of being in a space that I think everyone understands and has to some extent experienced, you know, the bad side of if, you know, what does it feel like if, if it's done poorly? So that there's a lot more kind of fundamental intrinsic motivation to look at things at, at a higher level than just, just the UI. Yeah, I mean, you guys have that benefit. I think a, a lot of people probably don't get that as much where we, you, it's almost like you're developing a consumer product in that sense where you can relate. Um, by, I'm, you know, what movie should I go see and the checkout and mm-hmm. what theater should I pick and all of that. It's it, when the whole staff, everyone at some point is going to go see a doctor so you can empathize with the scheduling process yeah. and build that in. But if for listeners that aren't, you know, you're not in that situation where maybe you're working on something very esoteric or maybe it's a complete B2B thing where, you know, your staff haven't worked in that industry and don't know that pain, it's even more important to go, you know, get that one-on-one FaceTime, uh, especially getting your engineers and, and designers to talk to these people and, and kind of start to develop that empathy. It really can change the the way they approach their work. So that's, mm-hmm. that's cool that you guys are in that space where everyone can probably relate to the pain of the hassle around, <laughs> like you said, picking cardio. Yep. I hate that stuff when it's like, go talk to this department. <laughs> like, I don't care what department it's in. I just need to get this exactly. thing done. And I want to know what the results were of this test. And I don't know who to call. It's your problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so we can exactly. all, all been through that. So. Well, cool. This has been like super fun. I, it's been great to catch up with you and hear, hear what you guys are doing at Kairos. Can you tell people where they can learn more about you and, and what you guys are doing? Absolutely. We've got a great website with a ton of resources and videos and white papers and case studies and whatnot around what we do as a company, kairos.com. We have a pretty big presence on uh, social, on, on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. So folks can follow us there. And then me personally, I think Twitter is probably the best place for folks to follow along with, with what I'm up to. I'm just at Jules U, J-U-L-E-S-Y-O-O on Twitter. All right. Well, I'll put that in the uh, show notes and the link to your Twitter account and uh, also over to Kairos. So Julie, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great to catch up with you. And yeah, I hope we get to uh, cross paths soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. It was great to chat. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.